again, and I'm Ian Jones from Backhouse Jones, a lawyer, doesn't make me a bad person. This is our podcast where we discuss everything transport related with a side order of law. Today it's going to be an extra side order of law, but unfortunately no one actually knows what that law is because it's to do with Brexit. Today I'm going to interview my colleague Patrick Boyers, who was called to the bar as a barrister, having done his barrister's exams, then saw the error of his ways and decided to become a solicitor. But before qualifying as a solicitor, he saw an opportunity and qualified as a customs agent. Patrick tells us that the customs agent's exams were more difficult than the legal exams and the barristerial exams, which probably says a lot for what's going to happen during the forthcoming Brexit negotiations. So we're recording this in October and the Brexit transition period ends at the end of the year. Patrick, is Brexit going to have a Hollywood ending? I think it will. I'm an optimist and always have been. I think friends fight, and I think at the end of it all, there will be an agreement. I mean, what we're hearing at the moment is essentially that there already is one. There's just a couple of sticking points. Certain points have already been agreed, but there's squabbling over fish, which has always seemed to be quite a political point, and there's squabbling over something called state aid, which is all about financial assistance given to businesses. But those seem to be the only two issues. Despite all the posturing going on, I'm very positive of the idea of a deal being at the end of the transition period. I think more people work in Poundland in Great Britain that are actually employed in the fishing industry, so it does get a lot of status. But tell me more about state aid. It's essentially when a country or, or a state, I suppose, gives financial assistance to businesses so that those businesses can set up and essentially boost that country's economy. Naturally, it makes something for an unlevel playing field, which goes against exactly what the EU are looking for. The EU at the moment have restrictions on how much countries can give to businesses in financial assistance. I think, off the top of my head, it's about 200,000 euros. What they want, it would appear, is that in the event that Britain, well, in the event when the UK leaves the EU, they align with those same provisions. So the UK government would still only be able to provide up to the equivalent of 200,000 euros to businesses. Obviously, that goes and rails against everything that the UK government sort of promoted Brexit as, which is a a financial nirvana, essentially, after the exit from the EU. And all the assistance they could give to businesses would keep businesses here. So they don't want to align themselves with those restrictions. Is that not a mixed message? Because uh, what you read in the Financial Times or what have you is that Britain's going to become the Singapore of the West so that there's low taxation or what have you. Is, is state aid not running contrary to that? I think what you'll find is the UK will become quite an attractive location for subsidiaries or hubs. So, for example, countries that might want to trade with Europe from the US but will struggle because there's the Atlantic in the middle, might set up UK hubs because there's financial benefits that could be offered either through state aid or generally through whatever free trade agreement we might come to with other states. But they might want to set up UK hubs, which will then neutralise the problem of geography. That's the kind of key reason is to bring businesses into the UK so that they're paying corporation tax and they're boosting the economy. Is Ireland still a sticking point oh my in God. negotiations? <laughs> <laughs> Ireland is an interesting topic, definitely. Not least because the actual agreed protocol is wickedly complicated when you actually look at how you might enforce it. But also because of recent developments, it turns out that the UK may, and I do emphasise the word may there, (laughs) might not adhere to it. The protocol in respect of Ireland is that, in theory, there will be no border 
along the island of Ireland so they were no you're not going to get stopped going from, from the north end to the south but you will be subject to customs obligations coming onto the island itself depending on where you're coming from and where you're heading by the sounds of it but as I said this new UK internal market bill sort of scuppers what might have been the intended outcome when it was agreed and do you think a resolution will be found yeah I mean the ball essentially is in the EU court at the minute the UK have always said in respect to Ireland look we're not going to put anything up we're not going to start stopping people and including these checks there so that if the EU want to preserve what is their single EU market the ball's in their court about whether they want to start enforcing it it's an interesting dilemma it's a classic who blinks first by the sounds of it in my experience the most important person in the EU is called Ursula but the most important person <laughs> in UK is also called Ursula my wife's called Ursula aside from my own personal position do you think that the two they're in this tunnel at the moment they're describing it as a tunnel this is the negotiations are called this tunnel it's a really sort of intensifying position do you think that there's likelihood for the, the tunnel to be extended or do you think that the arch Brexiteers want to derail it I couldn't speculate as to their intention what was reported is when it became apparent or when it was reported and admitted in Parliament that the UK government was intending to break the protocol, it did seem as if arch-Brexiteers and dedicated Brexiteers within the Conservative Party thought they might be able to get a bit more wiggle room out of that and just do away with it altogether. It doesn't look like they might succeed. I'm doubtful that they will. I think a, I think a lot of it's just posturing, if I'm honest. I think... Standing up in Parliament and saying, we are willing to break international law for this deal, then I think that it's more posturing than it is, this is what we're going to do, to show the EU that we're serious. We are serious about striking out on our own. That is essentially what it seems to boil down to to me, and the Brexiteers might have thought that they had a chance to derail the whole negotiations, but I do not think that that will come to pass. Are there any precedents for countries breaking international law? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there is no precedent for a country breaking the law to exit the EU because we are essentially the first country that's done it. Countries have, throughout their history, broken countless international laws. And the problem is that international law is in itself a concept. In order for it to be enforced, the countries have to agree that it's enforceable. Um, so, by way of example, off the top of my head, a country has to be recognised by other countries to be a country and that is international law as bizarre as it seems to be said out loud the northern cyprus by way of example plenty of countries do not recognize northern cyprus as a state but turkey does so it's a country and that's sort of how flimsy international law is. there's a similar circumstances around kosovo but i'd have to research that a bit more so when you say that is there a precedent for countries breaking international law yes countless countries have broken international law there isn't a precedent for doing it to exit the EU under these circumstances, essentially. Did you have any experience in October 2019 of advising operators? It's funny you should mention it, actually. <laughs> would, you like to, would you like to cover in the background about how you spent October 2019? Yeah, well, I mean, it depends how long you've got, really. As some operators will know, those who attended, we ran 66 presentations over 22 days in 22 different locations. I ran a half marathon in between it. Yeah, well, what the purpose of those presentations was that basically to prepare operators and, remember, exporters and importers 
as to what they might be looking at on a no-deal Brexit. Those goalposts have shifted to some extent now. In the current period, they might be looking at different outcomes. But at the time, we were quite proud to be involved in it. It was a service that was really needed because people were confused about what might happen in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And then... Naturally, towards the end, a deal was agreed, <laughs> rendering the final week a bit redundant. We did a 66 tour. We didn't have a T-shirt printed. We had a 66 tour date, tour of Great Britain, at the request of the RHA, who organised this, and we assisted them in doing that. We saw the length and breadth of Great Britain, but I do remember the state. I think we were in Peterborough. We were doing the seminar, and you were talking about the possibility of a no-deal Brexit. And this hand went up from some small operator the bag there's been a deal he was holding his phone he had the BBC webpage open on his phone breaking news yeah he said breaking news of it there's been a deal and then there was a mass exodus of people (laughs) some people did get up and walk out (laughs) what did you learn from doing that tour that 66 day tour first and foremost presentation skills I mean I was never particularly shy when it came to presentations but doing that many for that long does sort of refine your public speaking to an extent. I obviously, I also learned a lot about the types of people that were interested in the, the subject. We obviously went on this tour that was advertised by the Road Haulage Association and we had every man and his dog. We had people who'd shipped Roger Daltrey around Europe at some point and we, we had a, a wide plethora of different people who were interested in the subject, which was really good to see, obviously. It sort of showed me how cross-sector the, the subject of Brexit is. It was a fascinating experience because for the purposes of the record it was you, me and Jonathan who did the talk and I would open it with a bit of a cabaret whereas I'd just polish up my anecdotes and jokes and I think that was my contribution to it. When it got really, really difficult, Jonathan came out and answered the questions and then I think you, you started doing the sort of background reading that eventually took over from me because you actually knew more about what you were talking about than I did. But I agree what was fascinating was the wide range of people. We had people who were delivering multi-million pound boats down to the south of France and we had to deal with that then we had people who were taking tomatoes from Spain we had the chat <laughs> right. we had the one ch- time that the one time that you got where he literally said I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm teeing this up for you to say Patrick was amazing during this and nothing really stumps Jonathan but there's one part where Jonathan no is that Jonathan Patrick said I have no idea he was Swindon 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 Marriott Hotel and you know they're fairly wide fairly decent attendant and people are chucking questions and answers are going back and it's all very organic and back and forth and then one man raises his hand and he's turned up on his own and he's there with his notepad he says excuse me yes he goes I export carrier pigeons and there's a (laughs) there's a pause there we go okay and he went do I need to declare them if they are flying back to me <laughs> and I was looking at this uh, I have met my match <laughs> and um, I don't we, we, I, I looked at Jonathan and Jonathan looked at me and then I looked at Ian and Ian looked at Jonathan and then we all kind of went tiny passports <laughs> that is the, that, that's how we get through this take them to the leg take them to the ankle and get get them on the way <laughs> but we did we had to hold our hands and we said look we, we have done a lot of reading into this but 
we cannot answer that question <laughs> I'm afraid um, maybe someone will maybe someone will, will one, maybe we'll run into someone one day who specifically handles the export of carrier pigeons because that guy who, who, where were we I think they were in Kentway or something and there was a guy who he was asking very difficult questions and he clearly was foreign I, think it was a I don't think he'd grasped what the presentation was and he must have obviously thought that we were the government like we were literally had a red phone where we could call Boris up but he didn't quite grasp that we were just it was apolitical the whole presentation was apolitical we weren't there saying Brexit's great we weren't here saying Brexit's going to bankrupt you we were literally there to say this is what's going to happen yeah. Yeah. but literally every third sentence he'd go excuse me <laughs> wrong <laughs> and we, we'd go how do you mean it was a difficult position because at the start we used to say look this is all unpredictable and changing and if you have any information we'd be really appreciative if we could pass it on at the next presentations but he was just going nope that's not right and that was it okay what do you think well actually and we we never you never actually got a proper useful constructive information back but Jonathan was great because you can't whine Jonathan (laughs) the guy was like getting more and more agitated more and more aggressive and the more aggressive he was becoming the more polite Jonathan was becoming oh that's very interesting how lovely but then the mood of the audience was quite because there was about 40 people in the room at the time and he was I remember he was sat at the back it was Kent wasn't it it was Kent Kent, that was the show (laughs) (laughs) it wasn't so this room was full and this man clearly thinking we were from the government and he's trying to give us his, get his view and the audience were very very sort of polite but by the end of it he was just being lynched and just thrown out sort of run out of town we, <laughs> we gave feedback forms to the audience <laughs> and everyone that came back was positive and then there was one that just said like don't know what you're doing ridiculous idea <laughs> this will never work I mean, I wonder who has drafted this I just wonder who has written this he thought we were the architect of Brexit yeah no yeah he must have thought we had like Cummings in a box somewhere <laughs> but yeah no he <laughs> he was a particularly difficult one but generally the overview was positive do you remember so the most challenging one we did undoubtedly Heathrow because oh, obviously yeah. for, by way of background obviously Heathrow has plenty of customs agents uh-huh. and they're all on site so when we did Ian and I Jonathan did the first one and went and obviously did, did work and then Ian and I did the second one where all the customs agents are on their lunch break and came in so obviously we had to handle them but there was one bloke a challenging session no it was a challenging session but there was also one chap an entrepreneurial bloke and he turned up and he had this idea where he was going to go and get it was something called an Iori number which is a customs identification number he got that he thought oh I can rent mine out and I'll just do everyone's customs entries for them (laughs) as we went through this presentation explaining the difficulties of that he went from do you know the buzz you get with a new entrepreneurial endeavour? You obviously must have thought, I'm going to make loads of money, this is going to be a big breakthrough. And by the end of it, you look like a broken man. Oh. <laughs> he just looked like we'd shattered his dreams, <laughs> bless Bullshit. him. Because we said to him, look, if you're going to do this, you're going to have to get all this right because you're liable. 
And he went, pardon? <laughs> went, yeah, no, I'm afraid if you use your number, you're liable. He's like, right, yeah, okay. You can see him tearing up his notes. It's probably the best session he's ever attended. Yeah, absolutely. Probably saved probably him. Probably saved him before. <laughs> You see, you can hear the skin on the back of his neck crawling. It's like, what's that swooshing sound? It's the sound of where my heart was. It's come whooshing out of the door. What did the Iori stand for? It's the Economic Operator Registration Identification Number. I remember it because of the sad donkey from Winnie the Pooh. That's how I remember that. Paddy, you're fascinated by Brexit. <laughs> you, know, you don't have the fact. I have other interests, honestly. <laughs> what is it about Brexit and the whole period of this political... I like Brexit. the way the political mechanisms work. and it's, I mean, if you think about it, it's all law. And people brand it politics, but all of it is actually law how you get things to do this why so but why do we have to have customs obligations if we if we exit the EU well because it's the law and that, that's what the answer is to most of these so when you sat there explaining to someone the implications of a no deal Brexit and someone turns around and says well why is all this the foundation yeah you go well why and you go well it's the law I'm afraid and that's what it boils down to. I, I, don't want, I wouldn't say I'm wedded to Brexit. I'm just interested in you the topic. Found the pro, you found the process very I really have enjoyed following the process and I've enjoyed... People have been, like, rejuvenating legal me- mechanisms that no one has ever cared about. Prerogation of Parliament. What was that all about? <laughs> like, people have started using legal mechanisms that no one has cared for or had a thought for for years. I mean, the Parliament... At one point, I think Parliament held the government in contempt... <laughs> I don't think that has happened since like the 1800s or something I think Rory Stewart was going to have a, an alternative parliament at York it's going to be like the civil war there's going to be like roundheads and cavaliers I was waiting to get on a horse with a lance do you remember Change UK and the Brexit part the Brexit literally caused two new political parties to, to create them to, to essentially be bored I'm quite neutral in it all but I really I'm fascinated by how all the law fits together and how and the, what the outcome will be Actually, I'm not that bothered. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I don't care. It's like when you watch the end of a TV series. You're like, oh, that's cool. But this has been brilliant, the rest of it. <laughs> I actually don't really care. I don't but... think you could say it from a legal point of view where there's chaos, there's cash. Yeah, well, yeah. I, what does it say? I, yeah, it, it was... It's, I don't know what else to well, say. Well, I thought it was funny. When we're looking back now, we knew Boris was going to win. There's two reasons why. Oh, we, my God. Yeah. Because we were like a family. There was me, Jonathan and Paddy. And we would drive everywhere, unless we were taking the train. But we would land at about six o'clock at the place where we had to go and shower and come down for dinner. We'd have three pints of beer plus our meal. Then we'd go to bed. Then we'd have breakfast. That'd be five minutes late. Paddy would have a full English because he's in his 20s and carried on. Jonathan and I would have like some granola with a little yogurt on top to, to avoid looking like absolute sort of uh, glutens at the end of it. But we were driving somewhere and we were listening to a phone and I think it was Radio 5 or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's late. Go on, you tell the tale. Where we could, I think we were going from... Was it Andrea from We Boston? were going from Lincoln, it wasn't Lincoln, it was more south, wasn't it? Yeah. We, we, whichever radio station it was, was obviously putting a lot of promotion into opinions that were contrary to Brexit. So they were, you know, we heard a lot about people who railing against the idea and then they brought another one on and Andrea from Gloucester 
literally salt of the earth you could tell by the way she spoke came on she was telling about yeah well we, we don't know what might happen and it's all this etc and uh, someone goes well would you would you prefer Labour maybe leading the negotiations he goes Corbyn couldn't negotiate his way out of paperback <laughs> we, we were in this car where has that come from <laughs> I think at that point we all just went oh my god it's not all bashing one side there are balanced views on this and I think the second point, we was, you was chatting to the tea lady in, in uh, well, Kent, actually. It was, in, it was the same place with the Dutchman who was very angry. You talk about the sort of the paradox. We had the Dutchman who was very angry about it. And so I'd stepped out during one of the talks. I couldn't listen to Jonathan 66 times. I think 50 times was enough. So I was talking to the lady, delightful lady. And I can't remember her name now. But she was setting up the coffee for the break time. So I got chatting with her. It must have been a Tuesday and sort of questions in Parliament was on. And so I said, what do you reckon to this then? And she said, I can't really do the accent, but she was a proper Essex lady, you know, a lovely, delightful lady in her, I don't know, late 50s perhaps. And she was like, ah, it's got to be Boris, hasn't it? And I thought, he's getting in. He's absolutely going to... And so we knew he was going to have, not exactly an 80 majority, but we said at the time, we predicted it, say he's going to have a massive majority of you just by talking to ordinary people. And the lady at the, the sort of tea lady at the... Marriott in Kent somewhere. It was the village. It was the village. You know? I have never heard of the village hotel chain before this tour, <laughs> and I stayed in six. <laughs> I have never... And the menus are the same in every in all the restaurants. So I go, <laughs> we'd pull up, and we, don't, we didn't know. We only had the address on that bit of paper. Yeah. So we didn't know the, the hotel. <laughs> we'd come round the corner, and the village would emerge. And I'd just go, you know what I'm having for tea this evening? <laughs> <laughs> we didn't need to. Do you want the menu? Nope. nope. We don't need that. We will have a pint. Of, we will have a pint of your Camden Hells, which we know you have, and I will have the buffalo chicken, please. Test me on the prices <laughs> yeah. because we know them all. I know your menu, madam. Better than you know your menu. <laughs> but that was quite common, so we did because it, obviously we literally. It was not just the Brexit tour; it was the hotel chain tour, quite frankly, <laughs> as well. But let's not mention the name of the hotel, but one of the. The first one we stayed on was at Leeds. Is that the Abbey? No, that, oh. one, that was the second one. It was the second we had, the we'd had the grandeur of um, Newcastle, yeah, where we really we, we, we were treated like esteemed guests. And I think, I think you encapsulate Leeds particularly. The, <laughs> I've never been in a DSS hostel, but I'm pretty sure this would give it a run for its money. The, the mold, and I remember they gave, it was the set you write the second one, though. Oh my. God, I'm not going to see my family for a month. I'm going to be living. <laughs> do, you know, do you know how when you go to a hotel, you have, even in, you know, the kind of quite basic, obviously I'm, I might be coming across as a diva here, but the, there is shampoo, conditioner, shower gel. And they're in three separate, nice, neat, colour-coded bottles. And you can deal with that, and you're there for this day, and you know you don't. <laughs> All of them were one bottle, <laughs> stapled to the wall of the Shaped shower. Yeah, that was it. Shaped. Chained to the wall. <laughs> And that was the only thing you were provided with in the bathroom. And I read that was very liquid. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was in, in what is now an age of hand sanitizer. That seems quite surreal. I remember because your room was next to mine. And we went down today and we actually stepped out of our rooms at the same time. And I looked at him, he looked at me, he shook his head in such a way to say, my God. It's going to be a long time. Yeah. Do you have uh, any long journeys? 
Oh, yeah. I tell you what. We did one in Plymouth. Plymouth was an interesting one because that was the first time I did a full presentation, actually, because you and, jo- you and Jonathan Sons went, you've got this, and then went, went for a jolly. We did. <laughs> we went to Plymouth, oh, Yeah, that was it. <laughs> and um, so that was in itself a highlight because it's the first one I did all, all, that, all that right the way through. And then we obviously we had to go from Plymouth to Portsmouth, which, for those of you who don't know, is five hours by train. It would have been five hours by train because we had to go via yeah. Carlisle or something. Yeah, for some reason five hours. Yeah. <laughs> it was via the Eurotunnel, practically. <laughs> so it was five hours by train. Well, we're not doing that. Let's get a taxi. And historically, when we needed a taxi throughout the trip, we'd taken turns who sits in the front. Because um, obviously sitting in the front in a taxi is a stressful position because, you, you know, do you make small talk, don't you make small talk? As we approach this taxi for what we've been informed is actually a three-hour drive, Ian and Jonathan start giggling. Uh, what's my name? It's your turn. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wriggle my way out. And I went, oh, no, you're right. So I got in the front of this taxi and I knew it wasn't going to be a normal taxi ride. The driver looked at me and he was actually a nice bloke. He was a Romanian national... But he must have been driving for a while. We set off. He was showing me his radio and all of his different Apple Music things that he had. I think after a while, we all cottoned on. He, was, he wasn't colouring between the lines, really, Sweet. was he? Yeah. And so you leaned forward and went, excuse me, mate, are you under your hours? I don't want to do the accent. You can't you do it. He yeah. went, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> he obviously got the question. Looks at me. Crazy his neck backwards, still 60 miles an hour to address the question. <laughs> In Romania... I drive 5,000 miles, no break, <laughs> and back. <laughs> and we accepted that. <laughs> we, yeah. Fair enough. All of my worries are now abated. I will happily sit in this car. Let's get some Queen on that Apple music you've got. We'll see how far we go. Did we stop at a services? No. Did we stop in a well-lit, safe location, surrounded by witnesses? No. So we pull over in this lay-by. It's dark. There's no street lighting. There's no witnesses. There's no one around. And I'm thinking, this is the end. I think, this is where it all ends. This is the story of Pad. This is uh, is where he's done. He looks at us and says, you drink? I go, no, no. Let's just get this over with. Take what you want. Here's my wallet. Let's get this. Let's get this over with. He turns around again and obviously looks to to Ian and Jonathan and says, um... You smoke. None of us. None of us smoke. We go, no, 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 come on. Let's have it out. <laughs> Whatever you're going to do, let's do it. Let's get, let's get on with it. He opens his car door, pulls out a packet of cigarettes and um, a Lipton Peace Peach Iced Tea to wash down that nicotine. <laughs> Nods at us and says, right, it'll be three minutes. And disappears around the back of the car. I'm sat there going... Surely this is his ritual. Or before he robs someone or before before we're shortchanged or what have you. And I'm getting tense in this dark lay-by. And then I just hear, from behind me, you just go, I'm going for a whiz. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> and yeah, no, he gets back in the car and we drive for another hour and a half to a village hotel. <laughs> So we went to Plymouth to Portsmouth and um, we get out of this car. I remember we, we pay the bloke and you turn around and just went, are you going to go back? And he looks at us and nods and goes, yes, 
And that's it. <laughs> we, we drives off into the night. I don't know if it's a highlight, but it was definitely, undoubtedly, something I will always never remember. Forget. Never forget. So, Patrick, based upon your 66 lectures in 2019 and the current position that's taken place in the intervening 12 months, what messages do you have for hauliers who are going to have to engage with Dover, the channel, and getting into Europe come the 1st of January 2021? I think the key, the key message is get educated. There are communications out there. The government has recently launched a massive information campaign you can go on the gov.uk website and they have their own uk transition period page you can go in and enter your own circumstances and it generates a checklist for you to take a look at you're going to need to be educated not in just what you need to do but if you're a haulier you need to be educating what your client needs to do by way of just take it plucking an example off the top of my head the kent access passes that have recently been announced as i understand it the Kent Access Pass, you get one depending on how well you use the smart freight system, which is checks all your documents. But the problem is, if you don't have one, the driver gets the fine. So the issue with that is obviously your Kent Access Pass depends on how your customers completed their customs obligations and paperwork. But if your driver's the one caught down in Kent without the pass, they're going to face 300 quid. There are things to look at. You're not floating adrift without a steer. Go online, go on the gov.uk website and get yourself educated. What about the RHA website? Has that got good information? Absolutely. Well, actually, it's funny you should mention it. On the Kent Access Passage and the Road Haulage page of the gov.uk website, it does direct you to the Road Haulage website, uh, the Road Haulage Association website, for further information. And you've got tools. Use them both. If you've got, I mean, if you've got a toolbox, you don't just sit there banging a hammer on everything. You use a hammer for one thing and a screwdriver for the other. So go and get yourself learned up on things. Everything I know comes, we share an office with the RHA, and the, my, all my knowledge comes to speaking to Duncan. We're at our London offices. It's Duncan Cernan, Duncan Buchanan. Buchanan. That, that's the character of uh, giving it away now. Patrick and I are both writing books about. My, what am I. I didn't want to declare this on my podcast, but. Uh, I'm just going to get my pen and note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but my, one of the characters in my book, which may or may not come out in 2021, probably not, is called Buchanan. I think it's a great name, Buchanan. Mm. So don't give you can. If you need to know anything about Brexit, either speak to Patrick Boyers of Backhouse Jones or speak to Duncan Buchanan at the RHA because between them they'll know the answer. Patrick, you've had a circular route to this practice because you decided to be a barrister at the barrister exams. Then you wrote a novel during that time and then you decided to change to become a solicitor. What inspired you to go into the law? I actually never realised I wanted to be a lawyer until around about my third year of university. So I was sat there at college, 18, sort of naive to the world, and I couldn't really pick. I was going to pick history on the premise that I was good at it, which I would actively encourage people not to do. That is not the way to approach your degree in any way, shape or form. But then my mum sort of said, why do you do law? And well, what, what makes you think that? I said, well, it's in everything. You know, if you do it, if you could, you get a law degree you're not all too restricted by what you can do with it so oh that's a great idea so obviously I packed up and shipped off to Lancaster and then by the time I got to my third year you sort of see people drop out of your course and people move courses and change it and decide they don't like it and I got to my third year and thought I like this this is really good and I thought I like the sound of my own voice as well (laughs) (laughs) so maybe I'll go be a barrister (laughs) went and did the bar course I mean, when, you, when I was doing the bar course, it's really, it's intense work. 
so I needed something in between that just wasn't law. <laughs> what basically happened was I got I just kind of started bits of fun and got carried away and ended up with a novel. I ended up with a manuscript, and it did it did the rounds bit to a couple publishing agents and a couple literary agents. I spoke to a couple of them. And, you know, they chatted to me about it, and then obviously I finished the bar course and took a job as paralegal here. And from that, I have to say, the career trajectory... Someone told me the other day I've been here for three years. <laughs> <laughs> One of our solicitors had two children in the space of time that I've been here. So I was like, you are winding me up. And obviously, the, the time is just... Abs- I'm not, I've never really gone back to it. I've done bits of short stories every now and then. Just because I actually find it... It actually helps my work to go away and do something that's still productive, but not work-related, and then go back to doing a job. So I will write a short story every now and then. But I've never really got back into the literary world, so to speak. Maybe, now that I've qualified, obviously, as of this month. I'll, um, as of last month, sorry. I'll hopefully maybe have a bit more time. What well, did it feel like qualifying? Were you pleased with that? I was. There isn't a fanfare. I was expecting, like, trumpets on the day I woke up. No, it's, it's been really good, obviously. Did James Backhouse not spread rose petals in front of you as you walked into his office? I think we'd have a bigger issue. <laughs> yeah, we'd have a much bigger issue if James Backhouse greeted me with rose petals on my desk. I felt really proud, obviously. It's a funny story, actually. Before you get your practising certificate, you have to ask for your confirmation. You can ask for it in the English language or the Welsh language, because obviously it covers both. I accidentally requested my confirmation in both. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, I've got confirmation in both. It's fine. The practicing certificate will still come through. When I came through, I have, a, I have an English copy of my practicing certificate and a Welsh copy of my practicing <laughs> certificate. I, to this day, that could say anything. That, my, that practicing security could say in Welsh, do not let this man near your firm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have lots of Welsh clients. Maybe we could take it with you when you go to, uh, to visit an operator in North Wales. <laughs> Get them to translate. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a really, really... I've really loved it, actually, to be honest. Absolutely. We did have a lawyer who could speak Welsh, and we, we used to use her to sort of draft the stuff for the, the marketing in North Wales. It didn't worry me that she was actually saying... Do not go there. <laughs> I have no idea what <laughs> And people there go, well, what's this? Yes. Yeah. I always think that for people who get tattoos in other languages, yeah. like they've written anything. They've written their name <laughs> on your arm. <laughs> like, well, it means whisper in the wind. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It means Clive from Grimsby. <laughs> <laughs> Paddy, are you looking forward to doing the advocacy? Yeah. Get the opportunity. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> Advocacy was one of the key reasons that did originally take me down the barrister's route. Like I said, I do like the sound of my own voice. And the theatre. And the the theatre, and all the grandeur, and the your honours, and the my lords. I I do enjoy that. But no wig in front of the... uh, No, well... Yeah, I might buy me own. <laughs> shirt. Maybe just go and get a bright yellow wig to wear in the magistrate's court. I'd like the idea that it would become commonplace. And, oh, Paddy's got someone in the lists again. How do you know? You can spot him at the end of the road. <laughs> but I interviewed Dominic Regan last week, and he was saying he raised the point that I think the Marshal of the Rolls had said to him that if you took a lawyer from like the 1800s and literally took him in a time machine in a Back to the Future DeLorean and brought him to modern day court, he'd be able to cope. Yes. My lord, 
cross-examination, yeah. examine it, he'd be dressed for the occasion, and he probably would be able to cope with, if you just transferred in 200 years. What do you think about technology and law? Massive benefit. I'm a big advocate for technology and law, I think. I mean, if you think about it, law in itself is expensive, but if you can in any way sort of save on costs for your client, like as technology does, it's always a positive because, you know, costs, as much as people don't explore it as much, costs in, in legal litigation and legal affairs can be a barrier to actual legal advice. And um, I think technology, among other, among other things, is doing well to break down those barriers. Do you have any aspiration to become a judge or a traffic commissioner or some kind of judicial position where you start listening to advocacy rather than giving it? No. I think I... I, 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 love, I love the show. I love the show. I'm sorry, I shouldn't call it a show. Obviously, <laughs> you are representing your client and that's... I'd like to be in the game rather than refereeing, I suppose. Maybe 15 years later, you may give a difference. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know what I'm doing next week. I don't know what... That's the beauty of transport. Or, yeah, that, yeah, I don't know where, I don't know where I'll be next week. Yeah, just before we started this podcast, I got a call. Oh, we've got an incident in Germany. I don't know we can do that. We've got a lawyer who speaks German. It's, sort of, it, it, it's not normal, is it, transport? Yeah. What did they say? It's like bullfighting, neither for the faint-hearted nor the amateur. Yeah. No, that, I think it's probably correct. Yeah, no, I don't think I could... I mean, like I say, I don't know where I'll be, but I don't think I'd like to take myself out of the kind of advocacy part at this point, yeah. certainly. Yeah, Which fictional lawyers do you admire? There's one. Have you ever read The View from the Bridge... No. It's, yes. a, it's a play by Arthur Miller yeah. and there's a character in it called Alfieri and he is a lawyer and the reason I like it is if you look at the way lawyers are represented at the moment in like a sort of popular culture suits grand city offices you know we've got you know stacks of briefcases on the table filled with cash and checks and there's the toing and froing of corporate law Alfieri in The View from the Bridge looks after the dock workers and he doesn't just look after them in matters whereby, you know, they're up in court. He genuinely integrates himself with their personal lives and he looks after the people as well as their problems. I really do. I, I like that, actually. When you, when you come to look at a lawyer, I mean, law in the UK is nothing like suits or, or these grand... Ex- well, it might be in the city, but what a lawyer should be is like Alfieri, which is genuinely empathetic, caring and problem-solving. What, what characteristics do you think the best lawyers have? Empathy, undoubtedly. Why is that? Because you have to, if you, if you can put yourself in your client's shoes, then you know what the best outcome of the case can be, undoubtedly. And if you're not empathetic and you're just dogmatic about what you want and what the best outcome in law might be, you're not really going to get anywhere. Yeah, it's funny because you, you listen to people when they, they're criticising people who've been accused. Or, 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 they just presume that because they've been accused that they're guilty. Whereas when you do, you see it from the inside, you can see how people can get into that position. It's more nuanced than that. Now, the layman might think, well, there's no guilty people in prison. And we're like, there are. Mm. Do you believe in capital punishment? No. Why is that? Always like to consider the possibility that people can change. I think if you get capital punishment, you're just sending them down. You're sending them further away from the route that they could change. Yeah, I think mine's more sort of uh, realistic than that. You have to find many lawyers don't agree with capital because you know that mistakes can be made. Mm. And people think that the, the law is a cathedral where it's a casino 
And we see it, don't we, from our perspective, where people get embroiled in the system, and it's like, it's not their fault, and there's cock up, or there's something that doesn't look right. It's our responsibility to, as you say, step in their shoes. And it, you sort of wish that the lay people could see it more from the inside. They don't imagine that it could ever happen to them, and it can. The way you think about it is, if the criminal justice system or the civil justice system was perfect in every way and never made a mistake, there would literally be no need for lawyers. But we exist, so therefore there are errors. Yeah, what setbacks have you had in your career or your life? God, probably the most obvious is, when I did do the bar course, I applied for pupillage, and I got a couple of interviews and was and fell resoundedly flat on my face. And that was a setback, not just in like career-wise because it delays your progression, but confidence-wise. I think there's a, I actually think you can split people's confidence in how confident they are in socially and how confident they are professionally. I took a bit of a blow in how confident I was professionally after that, which I'd like to think I've recovered now, but that was definitely a setback. I suppose after all the time of thinking you're on this journey to be a barrister and then you you know you're at a real crossroads because you're then having to question the four or five years of training and what do you do with it yeah it's um, but it's more than that because if you think about it if you've been called in for interviews then people have looked at your CV and your application thought you could, so he, people thought you could do it so someone has looked so at your qualifications and your activities and gone he could do it yeah. and then they've met you and gone no he can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is probably the bit that hurt the most that was a setback that I like to think I've recovered from and I'm really enjoying yeah. the stuff disappointment is good for a young man it teaches them that life is earnest to be taken seriously I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> Borrowed that from P.G. Woodhouse, actually, and I've quoted it many times, that's why I know it off by heart. But it's funny how the bounce back's better than the setback, because if you had gone to the bar, you'd probably be eating porridge three times a day because there's no work for them, whereas today you're at the cusp of being the best transport lawyer in 20 years' time when James and Jonathan and Andrew step down and Mark probably still would be practising. But there's a, a bright career ahead of you. But in terms of your daily life, what do you think are red flags out there to worry about in daily life? The word but. I have never heard someone use that word and then something positive come after it. I say never. That's generalising. Very often you hear, I know you're busy, but... And there's always a, there's a pause. And even the person who's about to say the word but knows that you will know what's coming. And people go, I know you sat down and you're relaxing, you've got a cup of tea and you've got a broken leg. But... Can you just run 100 laps of that pitch, if you don't mind? The word but is the biggest red flag I think you could ever hear. And you know it's coming. Everyone involved in the in the interaction knows what's going to happen. And that, yeah, that's probably the, the one thing that I think. <laughs> People say, are you at lunch? Which part of you sat at my desk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so if you're invited to a dinner or something, if someone rings up and says, I know you don't like mushrooms, <laughs> but I've ordered you mushrooms. <laughs> oh, well, if you said but. <laughs> I like the word perhaps. Yeah. You know, um, perhaps bring a drink of tea. 
the other day but I use it all the time sugar cooks it <laughs> I like the word perhaps as well but I, I listen to uh, just a bit suggestion yeah. <laughs> I do it yeah but, um, David Mitchell was on the radio the other day and he was saying why in the English language do we not have a word or phrase for the ability to just say I don't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> would you like to come to dinner a week on Thursday not really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I can't. I'm washing my hair, or I've got to take the kids to some well, gymnastics. You see, my you can't uh, just say. my grandmother's cat <laughs> just has to go to its paediatrician. <laughs> so I'm afraid I will not be attending your gala. Why can't we just? Say, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Yeah. Maybe maybe we should all just have signs. Just say, nope. <laughs> <laughs> if you were having a dinner party. So Paddy, in an ideal world, if you were hosting a dinner party with past or present guests, who would you invite? One of the first I would invite is Professor Eisenhower. I think it's Eisenhower. He obviously oversaw the Manhattan Project, which dropped the atom bomb. Because I'd like to ask him, did you know what it was going to be used for? Was it in any part of your room, any risk assessment? Was it in any part of your considerations as you were, put, as you were putting this weapon together? I'd also like to invite probably Charlotte but any of the Bronte sisters because obviously they wrote their novels in groundbreaking literature but under the, in the, originally under the cover of men yes I'd quite like to know what that was like really be interesting to hear about how they felt how they came up with their literature etc and the third one would be Charles II who was described as the Merry King and after I'd uh, ticked off the other two, it'd be nice to liven up the party, I suppose. Do you have a favourite quote? Yes. Well, Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everybody else is taken. I think that's a good ending, Julia, because, Patrick, you are a one-off and you literally are yourself. We've watched you grow since you came here three years ago. I can't believe it's three years ago. And you have grown in confidence and yet continue to be yourself. My favourite quote, I'll be back. God willing, but people keep telling me someone else has used this before. But I'm Ian Jones and I'll be back. <laughs>